morning, Southbridge. A video from one of our strategic partner ministries, Gateway Ministry, and many of you know Wendy, a member of our church uh, there, and the ladies in the video, some of you know them as well. Um, obviously, this affects more than just the people that we saw in the video, and so, and not just women, there's one in four women, uh, the men were part of that as well, and uh, we want to encourage you to have a conversation about those things. You'll see some more instructions in your worship program about that. You'll also see that today we're doing our fifth Sunday dollar offering. Every month that has a fifth Sunday in it, we do a one dollar offering. So in addition to our regular tithes and offerings that you can just drop in the black boxes here on your way out, um, we're also doing a dollar offering. The dollar offering, uh, there'll be some people with baskets outside the doors today, is just if you have an extra dollar in your pocket, some change in your pocket, you want to drop that in there. We're going to give it to Gateway. 100% of that offering will go to them. And uh, like we always do, we regularly too, just so you know, just as an information for you for, about your church, um, even your regular tithes and offerings, you drop in the black box or give online or whatever, we tithe on that. So we challenge you to give 10% of your income um, to the church. And so as an example, as your church, we give 10% of the income that comes in um, to some of that goes to strategic partners, some of it goes to some other ministries and outreaches that we do in the community, but we give that money away as well. And so 10% of the offering today um, will go to some of those strategic partners and 100% of the dollar offering will go specifically to Gateway and their 6,000 Candles campaign. And there'll be some information about how you can be a part of that conversation in your small group. Uh, This week, some of you maybe have been living in a prison of secrecy in darkness and didn't think you could talk to anybody about that. And so we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. And our small group leaders will lead you in some of that this week. And so thank you, small group leaders, for your courage and uh, being able to attack topics that's not just a political issue. These are real people that we're talking about, uh, babies' lives that were lost, and uh, people that are, are struggling and not having freedom now as a result of some of those decisions. So one in four women, that's a lot of people. And so we want to be able to discuss those things. And also today, um, we're going to wrap up our series. We've been in the book of Philippians. And so if you have your Bible, it's going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Um, it's been a great series. I've learned a lot um, going through and studying this book written to this church in Philippi. And it's actually a church that, uh, because of the church was planted there, the gospel got to us. It's the first church in Europe. And so the gospel gets to us through this church that, that gets planted. And we've got these four chapters of this letter that Paul writes to them, the guy who helped start this church. And uh, some of you may want to go back through this series. And just so you know, all of our sermons are online. You can find them on the website. Uh, we give a study every week to our small groups. It's written. would help guide you through studying the book on your own and give some other resources that you can use as tools and aids in studying the book because what we've said in these sermons are not <laughs> the complete picture of the book of Philippians. We just don't have enough time. And so there's a lot to grab out of this book that's really all about joy, which is interesting when you look at it. It's a church that's going to be facing persecution. As you saw last week, there's division in the church. And so there's different difficulty that's taking place. The guy who's writing the letter is writing from prison and the whole thing's about joy. That should get your attention in and of itself. And uh, we've been studying through. Today we're going to wrap up our study in the book of Philippians. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll open the scriptures together again today. Let me pray. Father, thank you um, that you meet with us. Thank you for your grace and your kindness that you give second chances and third chances and fourth chances. I thank you for freedom that you offer. In your son Jesus Christ, freedom not because we're perfect, but because of what your son Jesus did on the cross. And I pray, God, that you would just transform some lives today. I pray that you would change us. I pray that you would use your word to renew our thinking, uh, remind some of us of the gospel, bring someone to faith, bring us out of darkness and into light. God, bring us a new level of joy that we've never experienced before because of our relationship with you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start looking at verse 10 for those of you who want to get there. But uh, I'd like to play a little game with us as we get started this morning. And I just want to simply play a game where I ask you to make a wish and you think about what wish you would make. And so if you could make any wish today and you knew what would happen, what would you wish for? 
And so you bump into a genie out in the lobby or whatever. You can't wish for more wishes, but you can wish for anything else. So what would you wish for if you got an opportunity to make a wish today and you knew it would happen? Maybe you'd wish you'd win the lottery. Maybe you'd wish you'd win you know, the HGTV dream house. Maybe you'd wish you'd get a job. Maybe you'd wish that something would happen in a relationship or with your health. What would you wish for? And you don't have to give me the answer. I just want you to get that idea, the thought, the answer to the question for you in the forefront of your mind. What would you wish for? Maybe you'd wish to undo something from your past. Maybe you'd wish to change some circumstances in your current situation. Maybe you'd wish for a certain amount of money. Maybe you'd wish for what would it be for you? And so I'll give you a second to think about that as you get that answer. Maybe you're debating between a couple. Maybe you're wondering if you should wish something for someone else. If you wish the thing for you that would happen. What is it that you would wish for? And now probably a more important question, why did you pick that thing? Out of all the things you could pick, why did you pick that one? Why did you pick that thing about whether it was about a relationship or about your finances or about your health or about your circumstances, about some goal you have, about a job, whatever it was. Why did you pick that thing? Do you think that that thing will ultimately bring you contentment? Contentment's what we're talking about today. It's a difficult topic because it's something that many of us think is going to happen someday, but it certainly hasn't happened yet because there's some circumstance that needs to take place, something that needs to be smoothed out, some goal that needs to be obtained. It's always just around the corner. It's the next stage of life. And so when you get to college, then it'll happen, right? Or when you get the job. Or maybe you could go back to college or wish you could be a kid again. Or maybe once you get married and when you have babies or one reti- maybe it's that retirement. At some point, contentment happens, right? But it's never now which makes me think of a story that I read one time by an author, Pastor John Ortberg. He wrote a parable about contentment. It was about a little girl who went to McDonald's with her parents, and they got to the Golden Arches, and they were standing there, and they were looking at the menu. And if you've ever been to McDonald's, you may be familiar with the menu. They come up, there was like a marketing genius moment where they came up with this meal where they took some of the food, they put it in a little box, and they took a little plastic nothing, we'll call it a dinosaur stamp today for the sake of the story, and, and they throw it in the box, and they charge way more than if you just bought the items individually. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. And they they call it a certain kind of meal. Do you know what that meal is? You can purchase happiness. A happy meal. And so this little girl standing at the counter with her two parents, and they're looking up, and she says that she wants a happy meal. The parents look at the menu and realize, I could order you a cheeseburger and fries for like $2. The happy meal is like $5. No, that's not in the budget. We're not going to get the happy meal today, honey. I'm sorry. And then she starts to do what kids oftentimes will do. I need the happy meal. I have to have the happy meal. And then she starts to barter with her parents. If you give, give me the happy meal, I will never complain again. I'll never ask for anything else again. I will be content for the rest of my life if you buy me the Happy Meal. Sounds like a good deal if you're a parent, doesn't it? (laughs) And so the parents pony up the extra change and they buy the Happy Meal and it worked. And the girl was happy for the rest of her life. And the way that Orberg tells the parable is that she lived kind of a rough life. She married a guy who was a loser. He left her with three kids and almost no money. The three kids were a disappointment. They went away to college, came back, dropped out of school, mooched off of her meager resources, and then vanished with no trace. And then her Social Security ran out. She lived her last days just hand to mouth, but she remembered that day when she got the Happy Meal. She's a well-adjusted, totally satisfied and contented woman because she could think back to purchasing that Happy Meal. And it really did give her contentment all of her life. What a glorious day that was. It doesn't work like that, does it? but we think in a moment it'll happen. And Happy Meals get more expensive as we get older. They turn into cars and houses and jobs and circumstances. If we could just smooth these things out, and we think that contentment has so much to do with our circumstances, and it doesn't. Today we're going to talk about the secret of contentment, and we're going to hear from a guy who actually experienced it, 
in spite of circumstances. His name's Paul. And we're in Philippians, as I mentioned, in Philippians chapter 4. And he talks about learning the secret of contentment. Before I start reading from Philippians chapter 4, though, let me just remind you of the circumstances that are happening here. This whole book, all this that we've read, is really a letter that's written by Paul to a church that he started about 10 years earlier in Philippi. And he goes to this church and he helps them get going and some difficult circumstances happen. He has some good situation where people start trusting Christ, but then there's also some persecution. And then he leaves and he writes them this letter back. And the reason why he's writing this letter is he's thanking them for a financial gift that they've given so he can continue to preach the gospel. And as he writes this thank you letter, he talks to them about joy all throughout. But it's interesting because Paul's in his 60s. He's single. He's homeless. He's traveling, continually facing hardships. And he's currently in prison. And now he's writing about contentment from jail to a group of people that are facing persecution. We saw last week there's division in the church that they're fighting against. And he's telling them about contentment. With that in mind, Philippians chapter 4, look at verse 10. I rejoice. Now remember last week he said rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. In all things, in every circumstance. He says, I rejoice greatly from jail in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. So they sent another gift. They sent a gift before. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. He didn't give them an opportunity to give money in in other situations. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. If I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And we'll go through the rest of the chapter today, but we'll just cover those verses for right now. And here we see Paul talking about contentment. He talks about the secret. I've learned the secret of contentment in every circumstance, that thing that's elusive to all of us. Something that many of us want to have. Some of us think that we have in moments when we get circumstances smoothed out. But then as soon as circumstances change, this guy's writing from prison. He's 60 years old. He's single. He's constantly on the move. He's constantly facing persecution, anxiety, difficulty, stresses from his job, persecution, difficulty from believers and from unbelievers. And he's content. What's that secret? Because most of us, we, we think there's something that will happen. If we just get that, then we'll have contentment. The other day, my, one of my daughters came up to me. And all of our daughters are nine years old and younger. And this was our second daughter. Turns eight today, actually. And she came up to me and she said, Dad, I just want to be older. And I don't know why. She, I, well, there wasn't much to the conversation. I said, well, you don't really want to be older. Just keep enjoy being a kid. Because she doesn't realize how good it is there. And she thinks it's just the next thing, right? The next circumstance. And many of us, we look at other people's lives, and it's like a feeder for discontentment. It's a continual comparison. We look at it, and we only see the good things in someone else's life, and we think, well, I wish I would have life like that. And so people that are single, they wish they could be married, because they see the married people. And then a lot, I'll just be honest with you, married people wish they could be single. And then you've got people that are in college, they wish they could get out of college. And there are people that are out of college, they wish they could go back to college. And there's people that, all kinds of scenarios. We look at each other, and we see this. I had one friend tell me, he thinks on Facebook and Instagram, there shouldn't be just a like button. You know, you see people's pictures or whatever. There should be a covet button. Because really, what we're saying when we see, you know, when you go to lunch today, and everybody can take pictures of their lunch today. When you go to lunch today and you take a picture of your lunch, what I'm really saying is, man, I wish I was eating that. And when somebody goes on vacation, I wish I was on that vacation, like, I mean, covet. I wish my husband would write those things about me on our anniversary. I wish that. My kids always got on the honor roll or graduated first in their class or won the dance competitions and blah, blah, whatever things that get put on Facebook about the kids. 
And so what we really do is we feed our discontentment by looking at other people's lives and wishing we had their lives. And the Bible then tells us that contentment is crucial. Paul tells his young protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, we do some incredibly difficult things at times to become godly. Fast, disciplines of solitude, silence, get alone, pray, read, meditate. We discipline ourselves for godliness, the scripture says. But what about for contentment? We just think it will happen at some point when circumstances come. And Paul tells Timothy here, it's godliness plus contentment equals great gain. It's one of the math problems of the Bible. Godliness with contentment is great gain. One time, John the Baptist, who if you know John the Baptist from the Gospels, he's the forerunner to Jesus. He comes and paves the way to the one that's coming. And he's preaching and his message was repentance, which is turn from your sins and turn to God. And he was asked one time, how do you know if you've truly repented? How do you know if your repentance was meaningful? What is the fruit of repentance? And he tells some soldiers this in Luke chapter 3, verse 14. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely, things they were doing. Be content with your pay. So we know that contentment is a fruit of repentance. It's a great gain with godliness. And it's elusive to most of us. And Paul tells us here the secret. He says he's learned the secret. And you know what the secret is? The secret of contentment is the cross-centered life. And I'll say that again because it's crucial. The, the secret of contentment is the cross-centered life. Paul's talking about his life here, that he's learned this. Like he said back in chapter 3 and verse 17, like many others are doing, follow my example and the example of those of us who are doing this. And he shared the examples in Philippians chapter 2. Context is always key. Context feeds the meaning to this passage. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Timothy, who put others' needs ahead of his own. Because he was doing the same thing that Jesus Christ did, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became a servant and became obedient, obedient to God, obedient to the point of death. Now, did Jesus do that begrudgingly? No, it was for the joy set before him. It was for you, for you to be reconciled with God. And so he had joy in going to the cross as he thought about what the cross ultimately meant. It's for Epaphroditus who lay his life down for the sake of the gospel. It's for Paul himself who says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. It's for all these people that are cross-centered. They can know contentment regardless of circumstances. So what is it to be cross-centered? Well, it's when the cross is not just the thing you go to for salvation. See, some of us realize the great truth of the gospel, that while we were God's enemies, sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And so we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Rather than the wages of our sin being death, we get that out of the way. We give that to Christ. We put that on the cross. And we come to him for the gift that he gives us. The gift of God is eternal life. And that's the cross. And that's all the cross is to many of us. But the cross is not just the beginning of the Christian life. The cross is, as Tim Keller says, not just the ABCs, it's the A to Zs. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The cross is everything to the Christian life. Where if it's central, everything else revolves around it. So everything else is impacted. So the cross then impacts our jobs. The cross impacts our relationships. It impacts our successes. It impacts our failures, our sufferings, our prosperity, our poverty, our power, our when we're in a, unable. All of those things are impacted by the cross. And so what, how does the cross inform those things? It becomes central to everything else. What, what, what are the meaning of what Christ did has implications for everything that happens in my life? It's not based on my performance, it's based on his performance. It's by his grace. He's changed my position. He's changed my identity. He's changed all those things. And we see it throughout the scriptures. Genesis 3.15, picture foreshadowing the gospel of the cross. Revelation chapter 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and wealth and honor and praise forever. The cross is central. And it's only the cross-centered Christian that can experience this kind of contentment. Paul's saying, look at my life. That my, I've got contentment. 
It doesn't matter what they do to me. It doesn't matter what circumstances. It doesn't matter whether I have plenty. It doesn't matter whether I'm in want. He says, I've learned contentment. And he uses that word in both verse 11 and 12. You can underline it in your passage of scripture for those of you who brought your copies of the Bible. That word that he uses there is actually an interesting word. He borrowed it from the Stoic philosophers of his day. But the Stoic philosophers, when they talked about contentment, they meant a self-sufficiency where you weren't dependent upon anyone or anything else. One time, Socrates was asked, who's the wealthiest man? And his exact quote was, he who is content with the least. The Stoics believed that contentment came not in possessing much stuff, but in wanting very little. And so their idea was, the less dependent I am on things or on other people, the more content I can be because those things and those people can be taken from me and it doesn't bother me. So contentment was like this even-keeledness, a not caring, an apathy which comes from self-denial. That's not at all what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about, he's got strong desires. I want to know Christ to the point where I'm willing to suffer. See, our problem is, not that we desire the things of this world too much. Sometimes that's, that's the way we get the message of going after, when we go after sex, and we go after alcohol, we go after drugs, we go after escapism, we go after overeating, we go after vacations, we go after accomplishments, we go after all this stuff, and we think it's because our desires for those things are so strong. I was talking to a friend yesterday, just struggling with looking at pornography. And it's not that those desires are so strong, it's that the desires aren't strong enough for the very thing that's going to give you satisfaction. We have too weak of desires. It's not that we need to deny ourselves more. Now let me tell you something, just being candid. I'm a person, I struggle with trusting people because I don't want to get hurt. And so I would lean towards the stoicism. Deny, deny yourself. If you just denied yourself enough, then you couldn't get hurt. But that's not at all biblical Christianity. What ends up happening is you isolate yourself, you miss out on the life that God intended for you, and you end up in a place of apathy. And what Paul's talking about here, and his contentedness is because of his strong desires. C.S. Lewis, I think, has the best quote on this. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, he gives this metaphor, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Paul's language throughout this book has been all about desire. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. What does that mean? It's because I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I strive with everything that I have, like an athlete towards the finish line, going after Jesus Christ. Not that I've obtained it, but that's what I go after. That's what my life is all about. Because I want to know Christ. He's a cross-centered Christian. What about you? What are your desires? See, your desires will ultimately determine the outcome of where you end up with this and the desires that we many of us have been chasing do not lead to contentment because they're weak desires and the things that we're going after like happy meals aren't going to satisfy us we know a happy meal is not going to satisfy us but we we use the same principles the same thoughts towards a new car or a goal to reach my ideal weight to get some job level to get some amount of money if i just do you really think if you had those things that it would work do you really think the job will make you content some of you might be jobless. It's not just a promotion you're looking for. Do you really think the job's going to deliver? Some of you want more than anything to have a child. Do you think that child's going to deliver? Some of you, you, you want your health. If, you, if, you, if the health situation was perfect, then you'd be content, really? And some of you may think that you have contentment down. You've, you've got this. You're doing pretty well at this. 
Let me ask you this. What if you lost something that was precious to you? Then could you be content? What if you lost your job? What if you lost your reputation? What if you lost, what if you lost your freedom? What if you were put in jail? What if you lost your marriage? What if you lost a child? Which would be awful. I watched a thing last night of a family whose child was stolen 25 years ago and they still don't know what happened. Awful. That would, that would break anybody. It, it, even Paul. Circumstances, terrible circumstances. I'm not asking for the circumstances. But does it steal your contentment? Or is your contentment found in something other than your circumstances? In the cross of Christ. And the joy that comes from knowing him. What was done for you at the cross. And, and knowing him and even in your suffering. Getting to know him more. Whether you walk through the valleys. Or whether you're on the peak of the mountaintop. That you can know contentment. Because you know him. And no one can take him. See, our problem is many of us are like Adam and Eve. If you think circumstances are the key, think about Adam and Eve. Perfect circumstances. Perfect relationship with God. Perfect relationship with one another. There was no sickness. There was no death. There were no tornadoes. There were no floods. There were no tsunamis. There were no, no bad circumstances. Everything's perfect. They're given an option. A piece of fruit or intimate, infinite relationship with the almighty creator of the universe. That must have been some amazing fruit, huh? No. What ended up happening was they were deceived. It wasn't that the fruit, I mean, sure, the fruit was good to taste, just like sin. It's always good to experience in the moment. If it wasn't, no one would do it. But it wasn't that the fruit was so appealing. Their desires were so weak. They were willing to settle and be deceived. So what do most of us want? We want to be loved. You want to be loved like the woman at the well in John chapter 4? We had five husbands. The guy she's shacking up with is not her husband. When she's being offered by Jesus Christ at that well in John chapter 4, a relationship and love from the creator of the universe. Which would you rather? Fruit? Intimate relationship with the creator. Or pick any other situation where we go after creation rather than the creator. <laughs> like C.S. Lewis thinks. Sex, really? Well, satisfying in the moment, but in comparison to intimacy with the Almighty? What about an escape and getting some, whatever the experience might be, a gluttonous meal, an amazing vacation, whatever it is. Awesome in the moment, but you have infinite joy waiting for you in a relationship with the Creator. Our problem is, our desires are so weak. And when we come to the place where we're cross-centered, we can say, like, the, the, Paul, the guy who's in, in prison here, the guy who experiences 2 Corinthians chapter 11, talks about all the hardships he goes through. Beaten, Five times he's received 40 lashes minus one. It's a flogging that he received. He's shipwrecked. So this is a guy that writes, by the way, never to complain about anything. And he says he was shipwrecked for overnight, all day at sea, all night at sea. I'm pretty confident that if I were shipwrecked, I'd be complaining. I mean, I just look at my own life, think a channel stops working at my house out of the thousand channels that are on my TV, and I get upset about that. I'm pretty confident if I'm floating around in the open ocean, I'm going to be complaining about something. He says never to complain. He says that he's spent a whole day in an open sea. He's constantly on the run from robbers, bandits, got pressure from believers that are giving him a hard time. That's not how it should be. From non-believers that are persecuting him, that should probably be happening. He's got the pressures and the stresses of all these churches and the problems that are going on in these churches that he's helped start. And, and he knows contentment. How? Well, look at what it says. Come back to verse 11. He says, 
I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He's not asking them to get a gift. He's not trying to manipulate them for more money. For I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've been in both situations. I've had plenty, I've been in need, and I've learned, key word, he wasn't born content. You're not just given a spiritual gift of contentment. You learn contentment. That word's actually in the perfect tense in the Greek. It's not something that happens instantaneously. It wasn't that all the moment, he had a eureka moment, you know, some moment where it's, aha, the light bulb turned on. Now I get contentment. So here's the reality. You're probably not, if you came in here without contentment, you're probably not going to leave with contentment today. There's no magic formula. There's no outline I can give you from this passage. The, the secret, which I don't even like that language. Paul borrows that from false religions of his day. It really means initiation. The secret. The initiation to contentment is living life through the highs and lows of life. He learned it by being in the open sea. He learned it by being put in prison. He learned it by having a bunch. He learned it by not having enough. And not having enough meaning, not that he had to cut the cable bill, by the way, it meant that he didn't have any food to eat. And he knew what it was like to have a feast, and he knew what it was like to go hungry. And as he lived life on the mountaintop, walking through the valleys, he learned contentment. And so we're all at different places today. Some of you are in incredibly difficult circumstances. Are you learning contentment? It ultimately only comes from Christ. Cross-centered Christians are the only ones that really know and can know and experience contentment. Some of you are on the mountaintop right now. Here's the temptation when you're at the mountaintop, is that you start to think you're self-sufficient. You start to think that it was through your hard work, it was because you were so faithful, it was because you were so good, it was because you prayed enough, it was because you read your Bible enough, it was because of all those things that now circumstances are good. And you start to trust yourself. That's a difficult, it's hard to be wealthy. It's hard to have a lot. It's hard to be blessed, as we say in America, and be content. Because contentment comes from the cross. So do you see your need? It's hard to be in the valley because in the valley you start thinking, well, why me and why this and where's God? Can I really trust him? Because what about, and if he would just fix these circumstances, then I'd be satisfied if I could just get the Happy Meal. And it doesn't work because even when those things happen, we still think, well, now if I just got the next thing, if it was just the, John D. Rockefeller one time asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. If you know who he is, it's incredibly wealthy. And Paul's saying here, it doesn't matter. He's in jail. He's experienced all these terrible circumstances. And you follow his life pattern. We studied the book of Acts together one time as a church. If you look through Acts, what you see is this continual ups and downs. He goes into a city, a bunch of people get saved. It's awesome. And then they want to kill him. It's terrible. So you've got this situation, kind of like in Jesus' life. They're praising him. They're laying palm branches down. They're singing worship songs to him. And then all of a sudden, crucify him. We want him dead. It's ups and downs. And so you've got Paul, he goes into a town, he's told when he comes to Christ in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, he's going to be the apostle of suffering. And then you follow his life and that's exactly what happens. Acts chapter 16, he's writing to these people, there he started this church in Acts chapter 16, and what happened? The first convert is Lydia, wealthy businesswoman. And he goes and he hangs out at her palace for a little while because she says, you come and live here. They've seen him live in plenty and be content. And then he gets arrested, beaten, thrown in prison, and he sings some hymns. And they've seen him be in want. And be content. And he's writing to these people that are now facing persecution, that are experiencing division in the church, and he's telling them, I've learned the secret of contentment. You can have the secret of contentment, you be content. It comes from Christ, verse 13. 
Verse 13 says, I can do everything, some of your translations say all things, through him who gives me strength. Probably the most popular verse in the book of Philippians. If you're a sports fan, you've certainly heard it as athletes quote it, Olympics athletes quote it, basketball athletes quote it, football athletes quote it. How did you do this amazing thing? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's also one of the most misquoted and misused verses in the Bible. If it were accurate to say those things after athletic events, then you know what? Every NBA GM should be drafting only Christians because whoever has the most Christians is going to win the game. And every football team should try and get a Christian quarterback that doesn't deflate the footballs. They should get a, a, a Christian running back who's not going to you know, push the ball out two extra yards when they get the thing. They're going to be honest because Christ is going to take it. He's going to win. Whoever's got the most Christians on their team wins because they can do all things. So if you have Jesus, you can fly. So preaches Oprah and others. See, this is why understanding context is crucial to understanding passages. Let me tell you something. If this verse were accurately used that way, then these faith healers that you see, we should grab some of them and take them down to the hospital. Instead of having their stadium with their prearranged sicknesses, why don't we take them to the oncology unit and have them come across some 12 and 13-year-olds that are dying of cancer? Let's heal that cancer. And then we'll go down to the morgue and we'll raise some dead people. I mean, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. We got the verse, and you quote it, and you claim it, and so they just give it a little bit more money, and you'll keep doing it. But the actual context for this verse is financial. And what Paul's saying is, I can do everything that God desires for me to do, whether I have all the resources in the world, or I don't have any resources, because I've got Christ. So it doesn't matter whether I'm living in the palace at Lydia's house, or whether I'm chained in prison and I've just been flogged and beaten in Philippi, I can do everything that Christ desires for me to do. And that's the secret to contentment. It's found in Christ. And it's found contentment in, not circumstances. Circumstances are really irrelevant once you understand the secret to contentment. It's the cross of Christ. And I just want to know Him. And you know what? I trust that whether I'm on the mountaintop or I'm in the valley, that God's using all these things to move the gospel forward through my life. And my whole life is all about the gospel. He says it in almost a coded way at the end of the book. And so we're going to cheat a little bit. Just jump down. We'll cover some of the verses I skipped here. But if you jump down a little bit, verses 21 and 22 in Philippians chapter 4, he's saying goodbye to them. So he's already given a doxology. The letter's really over, and he's kind of wrapping up some stuff. And he says, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. In verse 22, all the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. That's like coded language, wink, wink. You sent your gift so the gospel will go forward. I'm in prison. Guess who's holding Paul in prison? Caesar. And what he's saying is there are people in Caesar's household as a result of me being here who are coming to Christ. Wink, wink. The Christians in Caesar's family, they want to say hi. Guess what he's teaching these believers? Caesar's not the one in control here. God is. And he takes us, even in our situations in the valleys, and our difficult circumstances, him being in prison in this moment, and he uses them for our good and for his glory. Our good means that our life ultimately accomplishes the mission that God's given us to accomplish, which is cross-centric. Usually our good, we think, means all the circumstances are smooth and nice. The same guy who experienced all those things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, same guy who's in jail when he writes this, is the guy who writes Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. For we know that all things, every situation, that's the mountaintop and the valleys, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his 
purpose. And so God uses all the things. The difficult things. The victorious things. For his purpose. And when we have a God that we can trust him to do that. Then we can trust him with anything. Which then leads to contentment. That regardless of what then happens. We can be content in him knowing he's not up there going. Oh man I didn't know that was going to happen. Now I've got to scramble and try and fix this. and make. He uses all things. For our good. For his glory to accomplish his purposes. So we can trust him. It's interesting that right after 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul then writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about some circumstances he wished were not true in his life. We oftentimes call it the thorn in the flesh that he has. He says, three times I prayed to God and asked him to take it away, and he didn't. But then what does he say? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it says in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I depend on the one who I can do all things through, Jesus Christ. I know contentment. Why? For the sake of Christ. And what do I want? My strong desires in my life is I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. So that's the secret to contentment. But we can't just pray now. God, help us all to know that and we'll be good. You know how you learn it? You learn it. He's 60 years old when he writes this book. In that range. Somewhere in his 60s. He's learned it by going through the ups and downs in life and in the ups, trusting, and in the downs, trusting. See, it's possible to live a really difficult life and still not know contentment, still not learn these things. You just go through the circumstances, but you don't learn to trust. He's learned to trust in all these circumstances. He's dependent upon Christ. And then he's seen Christ come through. And he sees that even in his jail, like, why am I in jail? Why am I here? All oh, these people are coming to Christ in Caesar's household. And so he knows the secret to contentment. And so do the Philippians, and he encourages them with that. Because when you know contentment, you know how it's revealed in your life? It's through your generosity. You know that someone's content with life when you see that they're willing to be open-handed with the life that they've been given. And so it's our generosity that actually reveals our contentment. And that's what Paul talks about in the next verses, in verses 14 through, really, verse 20. As I said, verses 21 through 23 are kind of the wrap-up of the book and the, those final greetings and a little code. But in verses 14 through 20, he really talks about their generosity because generosity reveals whether we're content or not. You want to know whether you're content or not? It's not a feeling you have. Those might be based on circumstances. Contentment is really based on, if you want to know if somebody's content, ask them to see their checkbook. You can fake someone out with writing a bunch of stuff in your Bible, doing all the spiritual disciplines, saying the right stuff, acting the right way. But if you want to know if someone's content, look at their checkbook. Look what Paul says in verses 14 through 20. It was good for you to share in my troubles. So you partnered with me in my suffering when you gave this gift. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. And so they started giving right after he left them. He says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, which is one of the first places he went to after Philippi, if you read in the book of Acts, and he's at Thessalonica. Thessalonica is wealthier than Philippi. Oh, something you should learn about the Philippians, by the way, is they were extremely poor. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You'll have to study that on your own. We don't have time to go there this morning. But he ends up talking about how they begged to give, even out of their extreme poverty. So that means this. When they gave financially... It wasn't out of their excess because they had gotten so much blessed into their house that just, we don't know what to do with it, we're going to give it away. It was, we're going to not eat so that we can give money to Paul. And they weren't doing it because they had to, they were begging for the opportunity to give to Paul. 
And so think about when, when somebody, if you have little kids, they're begging you for another, they want, that's because they want something. They wanted to give. And so what 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is all about is don't, don't give because you have to. Give because you want to. Give out of joy. Give when you can give and it's a joy to you. And so when you know that you're at that place, then you know that you know contentment. And what Paul's saying here to them is you did that even from right after you got the gospel. Right after, you would, as a new believer, you were doing this. You sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And then Paul says, to be clear, not that I'm looking for a gift. He's not going to manipulate these people he's ministering to. He's not trying to abuse them in that way. But I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. He wants them to store up treasures in heaven. He doesn't want their desires to be so weak that they think they're just going to make all their investments here on earth. But he wants them to make eternal investments. There's bigger dividends to be paid. Rewards in heaven. He says, I've received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied. You don't need to send me any more stuff. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. And then look what he says about them. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. When you're giving for the sake of the gospel cause, you're giving to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Verse 19. And so he talks about their generosity. And what he says is, you, you want to know whether or not you're, God's being faithful to complete the work that he's done begun in you? Look at your lives. You're doing it, Philippians. It's happening because you're being generous. You're giving out of a joy in your heart because you know this, the contentment I'm talking about. You're experiencing it, and we see it through your generosity. If you want to know if you're content, look at your checkbook. Don't look at... Your Bible, and whether your Bible's getting used. Don't look at how much time you're spending praying. Don't look at whether you know the Christian vernacular and all the words to say, to say to be in the right situation with the right people at the right moments. Look at your checkbook. Because you can fake everybody out with everything else. Look at guys in the Bible. People, some of the most unhappy, dissatisfied, uncontented people you see in the Bible are people that had a problem with this. Look at Judas. You look at Judas. He's hanging out with the disciples. They don't have any idea that he's going to betray Jesus. If they had looked at his checkbook, they would have known that. He's stealing money from the treasury. He goes and he sells Jesus. What will you give me if I give you Jesus? He makes the deal. He takes the initiative. They don't come seeking him out. And that's 30 pieces of silver. So he gets 30 pieces of silver. And then, after Jesus is betrayed, he tries to give the money back. Why are you giving the money back? Didn't the money bring the contentment, Judas? See, the problem that most of us have is we can't give because we think that we're giving away little pieces of happiness. We think that happiness, we've been deceived, like Adam and Eve in the garden, and we think that happiness is found in the things that we can obtain and the circumstances. We think that can control our circumstances and give us security, so we can't give it away because we're giving away our contentment, the very thing that we're seeking. Judas had the money. Why does he go kill himself? He didn't have contentment. He didn't have Christ. Look at the rich young ruler, Luke chapter 18. guy comes to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knows this guy's issue is money. He says, go sell all your stuff, give it to the poor. And Jesus makes it clear, I'm not trying to get your stuff. You give it to the poor and then come follow me because he knows that's the thing that's hindering this guy from following Jesus. And the guy leaves and the text tells us in Luke chapter 18, he went away sad. Why is he sad? He still has his money. He didn't have to give anything away. We didn't get Jesus. Then you flip it and you start looking at other people in the scriptures that were generous. Look at Zacchaeus. In Luke chapter 19, right after this rich young ruler story, there's this guy, Zacchaeus, who's incredibly wealthy. He's been stealing money from people as a tax collector, extorting money under the rules of the, the current situation, but unethical. And so he's been doing this. He's got all this money. Then Jesus comes to his house and he says, Salvation has come to my house this day. And I'm going to give half my money to the poor. And then I'm going to pay back everybody that I've cheated four times. What I, so he's going to give everything away. I'm going to pay them back four times what I cheated them. And so you don't think there was a line at Zacchaeus' house the next day? 
He's doing the thing that the rich young ruler couldn't do. Because now he's experienced salvation. He's a cross-centered Christian. And none of this stuff was just money. Who cares? I'm going to make eternal investments now. I'm not about storing up stuff here where moth and rust destroy. I'm going to make an investment where, where thieves can't steal it. And moth and rust can't destroy it. So it's eternal rewards. They're looking for bigger dividends than you're going to get from Wall Street. Bigger dividends than you're going to get from your bank account, from your CDs, from your money, from all the different cash places we can put money, from real estate investments, from all that stuff. You're talking about eternal rewards. I heard a, a John Piper message. It was 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I was listening to, I was mowing the lawn this week. And he talked about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, for those of you who don't know, started the China Inland Mission. Uh, millions of people have been saved. Uh, gave his life for the sake of the gospel and said, I never sacrificed anything. His son was later interviewed about that. His son said, my dad meant by that that it's never a sacrifice because you're storing up rewards. And he actually believed that it's better to give than to receive. See, the reality is most of us don't believe that. Most of us don't actually believe Jesus. Most of us don't actually believe his words. Or we could be generous. And what you see in the scriptures is those that know contentment, that find contentment, they could give it all up. Like the disciples that walk away, drop their nets, follow Christ. Like Zacchaeus. It's like one of my, one of my daughters right now, is a, she's a big animal lover, and her thing right now is uh, Hope Reigns is having a camp this summer. She wants to go to this camp. We went to a picnic a couple weeks ago, for those of you who were at the church picnic. Um, we were over at Hope Reigns property on Old Creedmoor Road. And those of you who don't know, Hope Reigns is a ministry where they use horses as a means to connect people to Jesus for life change, specifically kids that are going through difficulty. And so they do these sessions, and one of the ways they raise money is they have camps uh, in the summer to raise money so they can provide sessions to kids that are going through difficult circumstances. Well, my daughter doesn't know all that. What she knows is she loves animals. I can't really put into words how much she loves animals. The best example I could think of to give it to you in a, in a concise moment was the other day we were playing a game at our kitchen table where I was just asking, if you could have any superpower, what would your superpower be? Flying was an obvious one, time travel for one of them. I uh, wanted to have x-ray vision, all those different things. But Janie, when we got to Janie, our five-year-old, she says, I, I wish that I could talk to animals. I don't know that animals have a lot to contribute in conversation, so I wouldn't pick that one. But she picked that one because she loves animals. And so we go out to Hope Reigns for the picnic the other day, and she finds out about this camp. She wants to ride these horses and be by these horses. So then we're at our house. Next day, she comes up to me with a napkin full of change. She's five years old. So all the money she's ever saved in her whole life is wrapped up in this little napkin with change in it. She says, Dad, you can have all my money if I can go to camp because I love horses more than I love money. Which, how do you say no to that, by the way? But then, but then as I thought about it a little bit later, I thought to myself, can I say that about Jesus? I love Jesus more than I love money? Because the Bible says you can't have two masters. To love Jesus more than I love having my circumstances exactly the way that I want my circumstances. To love Jesus more than anything that I'd wish for, like I asked you at the beginning of the message. And I'm willing to hold all that stuff open-handed. Willing to give it away. See, generosity is what reveals our contentment. Our contentment is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the secret. And it says in verse 19 that he will supply not based on how much we give, how much we pray, how much we do, he will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches. That's good news for you and I. That's grace. Not in proportion to what we do, in proportion to anything that happens, in proportion to what he has. Guess what? He has it all. He owns a cattle on a thousand hill. He owns the silver and the gold. It's his. He owns everything that's in your bank account. It's his. In proportion to that, he's going to supply your needs. 
And then Paul ends with the doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Then he gives that greeting and then he gives another doxology. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Because that's the only way you're going to ever experience contentment. Amen. And that's the book of Philippians. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, that you will meet us. I pray that you will meet our minds and our thoughts in moments of anxiety, that you'll give us a peace that surpasses understanding. I pray you'll meet our hearts and our passions and put in us a desire to want to know you and the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering. I pray that you would have us in our physical abilities to strive after you, to come after you and to love you with all of our strength. Father, I pray that you will complete the work that you've begun in us. I pray that you'll do that work in us and you'll give us joy. Give us joy in difficult circumstances. Give us joy in amazing circumstances. God, help us to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice and to be a body who's open and honest about where we're at. Father God, I pray that you'd give us great relationships with one another, laying our lives down for each other and caring about each other's needs above our own and having an attitude like Jesus, that we'd be servants, that we'd be willing to serve one another, that we would serve you and it would be joy to us to lay our lives down and become obedient, obedient just like your son Jesus was. God, give us contentment. Help us to learn the secret of contentment as we walk through this life together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.